When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Discover. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. That means no waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey there, it's Stephen Dubner. You may or may not know this, but I've been cheating on you every week. Along with making Freakonomics Radio, I make another show called No Stupid Questions with my friend Angela Duckworth. She is a research psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also the author of the book Grit. And as you'll hear today, she's just a lot of fun to talk to. Every week, we try to answer one question about psychology or society or human nature, really anything that catches our interest. We started No Stupid Questions a couple years ago, just as an excuse for me to hang out with Angie once a week. Since then, it has become one of the most popular shows in the Freakonomics Radio Network. So if you are not listening yet, maybe you should be. What you're about to hear is a brand new episode of No Stupid Questions, and I hope it will inspire you to follow or subscribe to the show in your podcast app. One big difference between this show and Freakonomics Radio is that No Stupid Questions is really just a conversation, which is why, as you'll hear, we have a fact-checking section at the end to catch our mistakes. With Freakonomics Radio, we do fact-checking all along the way during the whole production and interview and editing process. That doesn't mean we never make a mistake in Freakonomics Radio, but we do catch most of them before you hear the show. Anyway, in this episode of No Stupid Questions, we'll be talking about how our surroundings can make us smarter and maybe happier, too. As always, thanks for listening. And again, I do hope you'll also start listening to No Stupid Questions every week. I also feel better now that I've told you about my infidelity. It's a good way to start the new year with a clean conscience. 88% of elementary school teachers encourage their students to hold their pee. I'm Angela Duckworth. I'm Stephen Dubner. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to No Stupid, Stupid Questions. Questions. Today on the show, how does the built environment affect human behavior? It does not matter to him whether it's 100 degrees or 50 degrees, whether a building is designed well or whether it's a cave. When he's doing his work, it just doesn't matter. Angela, good morning. Good morning, Stephen. We have an email here that I think you're going to find particularly interesting. It is from one Yildiz Bashol. She writes to say, Dear NSQ team, I am an architecture student at the Technical University of Munich in Germany, and I find it fascinating how the built environment affects us. I would have to agree here with Yildiz. It is fascinating how the built environment affects us. Agree. Furthermore, she writes, I have read a few papers about how children perform academically better in some school environments compared to others and would love to hear your opinions about it. I believe in using this power of architecture and design to help improve lives, since a good education has such huge potential benefits on an individual, but also on a community level. That's what economists call a positive externality. The more people get educated, the better it is for everybody. I have decided, she writes, to focus on designing a primary school for my master's thesis that shares its facilities with the community, offers adult education classes, and acts as a neighborhood center. So, she writes, my question is, does the built environment affect our lives more than we realize? Can architecture really make us happier and more successful as we designers would like to believe? So, Angela, let's start with the basic assertion here, especially the one that falls into your wheelhouse, is it true 
as Yildiz says, that there is research showing that children perform academically better in some school environments? There is research on exactly that question, but I think long before there was social science research on whether or not the design of your classroom or your school building influenced your academics, there was an intuition. What architect does not think that there's some influence of the built environment on psychology? I mean, look at all the religious monuments and temples throughout history. Think of the Parthenon. Think of every state house that was ever built. I'm sure you know this better than I do, like the famous Winston Churchill quote about the architecture of parliament. I think the direct quote is, first we shape our buildings, and afterwards our buildings shape us. The context of this was that I think, and you know I'm no student of history, but parliament had been bombed, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think it's World War II. And it was under Winston Churchill's watch that it had to be rebuilt. And so architects came forward with a number of plans. You know, should it be like a circular shape? Should it be oblong? And these various plans had little line drawings of where people would sit in the building. And since the British system was a two-party system, Churchill maintained that they should rebuild Parliament exactly as it had been with benches for one side facing the other. But he felt like that kind of dialogue, the oppositional, like, I need to face you, was elemental. What I've read about that, and I have attended on Wednesdays, there's what's called Prime Minister's Questions, where the Prime Minister actually sits on the bench there and fields questions. And the opposition, as you said, they're separated by not very far. They are face-to-face so that their spittle actually hits each other. And I've always heard that the idea was, if you want a government that is accountable to the other side, then it really makes sense for them to face each other and air their grievances and so on. The idea being that it will somehow produce a more civil discourse. I have to say, as anybody who's watched any prime minister's questions or parliamentary debate, it doesn't work. I don't know if it's supposed to be civil, though. I think it's supposed to be antagonistic. I think actually it's supposed to be productive. The explanation that I heard was that, again, an accountable government, you want to face the charges and defend them. I mean, I think the example you're giving is a good example of how architecture influences behavior, but not always, perhaps, the way the architect imagines. There's another example I think of You've been to the Vatican, I assume? I have been to the Vatican. So, you know, when you walk into St. Peter's Square there, there are these two big rounded colonnades or rows of columns that are meant to, as I've read, at least architecturally, feel like arms welcoming you into the fold. Mm. This is, I am the Lord, your shepherd, welcoming you into the fold of the church. Long before I knew that was what it was supposed to represent, when you walk in there, it's an overwhelming feeling of awe. Maybe some would feel comfort. But it is, look, we've firmly established that architects do stuff on purpose and we respond to it, right? We do have that as a kind of given. And then the question is, you know, are they right? Because they could be wrong. (laughs) There's an article that was published in 2015 called The Impact of Classroom Design on Pupils Learning, Final Results of a Holistic Multi-Level Analysis. Pretty sexy title there. It is sexy. Equally sexy journal called Building and Environment. And the authors are several, but I think the most senior author on this is Peter Barrett, who was the founding director of this thing called Salford's Research Institute for the Built and Human Environment. And what this study did, it's not random assignment. I guess it's in theory possible to randomly assign kids to go to different classrooms and different schools and also to have random assignment of architectural styles. So the big caveat on this is that it's a correlational study. But that said, it's 153 classrooms in 27 different elementary schools, or I guess they call them primary schools in the UK. And the aim was to identify, this is a quote, the impact of the physical classroom features on the academic progress of the 3,766 pupils who occupied each of those specific spaces. Okay, great. 
And very specifically, the report concludes that seven key design parameters were identified that collectively explained 16% of the variation in pupils' academic progress achieved. So in other words, there is an effect of architecture if you, you know, trust these correlational findings. And when you ask the question like, well, how much is 16% of the variation? Is that a lot or a little? I can tell you that is a lot. Most interventions have a fraction of that effect. So there's something going on here if, you know, it is all about the architecture and not something that correlates with the architecture, like how wealthy that school district is. But if you take it on face value, you have to say, wow, what are these seven key design parameters? Yeah, Angie, what are these seven key design parameters? (laughs) So they are as follows, light, temperature, air quality. And these are three that the researchers would call kind of like naturalness. You know, if you have a lot of natural light, if the temperature is comfortable for you and the air quality is good, you know, not polluted, that's all kind of mimicking in a way being outside on a nice day. And that actually turns out to be about half of the effect of the built environment when it comes to classrooms. And it's also what the researchers say that everybody thinks about, right? When you think about a wonderful classroom, maybe your own primary school classroom and how it may not have been ideal. Very often people think, like, was there light? Was it too cold or too hot? And was it, like, stifling? Basically, was there a lot of fresh air? Right. Okay, so the other four uh, factors are as follows. So first I'll give two that they would call stimulation. There's color and complexity. And here, color is the variety, the brightness of the colors, like how much color is there. And complexity is just, like, how much crap there is. And the interesting thing about complexity and color, these two features of stimulation, is it's kind of like a Goldilocks story. It's really important that you don't have too much color or, you know, too much crap in the classroom, but also (laughs) not a monochromatic classroom or one where there's nothing on the walls. Mm -hmm. And the final two features fall into what they call individualization. So individualization includes ownership and flexibility. Ownership, the researchers define as basically your ability as a student and also as a teacher to like customize the classroom with things that are unique to you, kind of like when teenagers decorate their own bedroom. And flexibility is, is everything just fixed or is there some opportunity to flexibly rearrange chairs or boards or anything else so that you can have roundtable discussions when you need them, but, you know, line things up for a speaker when they come in. So, you know, collectively, that's the story that they want to tell half of the effect of the built environment being about naturalness, and then the other half being almost evenly split, maybe a little bit more for individualization, and then finally stimulation. So I will say anyone who already appreciates design or architecture even a little bit will say, well, yeah, like no kidding, like it took (laughs) all these academics to find that the design and architecture of a place really matters. But your argument here is that not only does it matter in terms of being more pleasant, perhaps, but it does seem to affect individual performance for school children, right? Even though it's correlational and not causal necessarily. Yeah, so if we give them a pass on random assignment and experimental design, I think the surprise in this might be, but really, their actual academic achievement Really? Like, yeah, I can understand them being, I don't know, in a better mood, less cranky. I have to say, it doesn't surprise me. I do think back to this study from a long time ago that we discussed in an episode of Freakonomics Radio called Please Get Your Noise Out of My Ears. It was about noise pollution, essentially. There's a woman named Arlene Bronzaft, who is a sound scholar, I guess, in New York City. There was a study that she had run years and years ago, and it was very unscientific. You'll understand as soon as I tell you why. There were complaints from a school in the Bronx that some of their classrooms were right next to the elevated subway. And it was really, really noisy. And there were parents, I want to say, who were trying to get this changed, but they wanted some evidence. So Arlene Bronzeff came in to do a study. And the study she did measured academic performance in the classrooms that were right next to the elevated subway and similar classrooms on the other side of the building that didn't have the noise disruption. Now, You can imagine the many reasons why that may not be purely scientific. We don't know whether those two sets of classrooms were 
what you people call observationally equivalent and so on. Yeah. But she did find that there was something like a full grade level of math achievement different in the noisy rooms versus the quiet rooms. Now, I don't know about you, Angela. I am sensitive to my environment. I know people, however, who are not. Like Steve Levitt, my Freakonomics buddy, he claims that it does not matter to him whether it's 100 degrees or 50 degrees, whether it's noisy or not noisy, whether a building is designed well or whether it's a cave, that when he's doing his work, it just doesn't matter. Hmm. I have a hard time believing it, but maybe that's just because I am more sensitive to environment. What about you? I have a hard time believing it doesn't affect Steve Levitt at all. It strains imagination to think that if you are trying to write a paper and your kids are like in the next room or anything that would be disrupting your attention. However, it does not strain my imagination to think that he's pretty good relative to other humans. A low level of distractibility, you're saying. I mean, I'm like him, I think. So Jason, my husband, has this complete inability to focus when there's anything distracting, like a TV on. Just this morning, there was this like beep in my house and I couldn't figure out where it was. And I was like, (laughs) is it a fire alarm? And I spent a few seconds trying to figure it out. And then I just like went back to my work. Every few seconds, this like beep would go off. Jason, meanwhile, would have torn down the walls looking for the beep. Jason's head would have exploded. So I think there's a continuum and maybe students too vary in how influenced they are. Absolutely. It sounds like you and Steve Levitt are pretty good at tuning out a lot of things. It sounds like Jason and I are not. I am curious to know how our listeners feel about this. I almost feel we could make it a team sport here. Are you team Angela or are you team Steven? Wait, what's my team? Team Angela She can really work through anything. She is not easily distracted. Why do you call that Team Levitt? I just spent a good portion of my oxygen trying to say that the built environment really does matter. So why do you make that Team Levitt? Fair enough. Because he's not here to defend himself. Team Levitt is, it doesn't matter if you're in a 100 degree cave or a 62 degree high rise office. You're just going to focus on your work and get it done. Or are you Team Dubner, which is, oh. I'm like the princess and the pea. If there's a little bit of a beeping, like when I go to the gym, I often bring reading to the gym and I ride a bike and read. But if I'm in there reading and someone has left a TV on, even with no sound, I can't even read if those MSNBC shouters are shouting at me with their open mouths. That's how (laughs) sensitive I am. So I would like listeners to tell us, are you someone who's environment really affects their ability to work and affects their mood a lot or much less so, much more like Levitt. Use your phone to make a voice memo. It's very easy. And email it to us at nsq at freakonomics.com. We may play it at the end of the next episode. Still to come on No Stupid Questions, Stephen and Angela discuss what modernist author Virginia Woolf had to say about how people's environments affect their productivity. Everyone who's listening to us should quit their jobs and become writers and work on their own, correct? Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example, combining assertive on-road performance with signature Range Rover refinement and commanding all-terrain capability. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. Range Rover Sport redefines sporting luxury, an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. Combining dynamic sporting personality with the peerless refinement you expect, Range Rover Sport communicates power, performance, and agility. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. 
That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. Free Economics Radio is sponsored by Southern Company. Southern Company has a vision of a resilient energy future, and every day they put it in motion. They are investing in carbon-free nuclear, along with wind and solar power, as part of their balanced approach in the transition to a net-zero future. They are creating jobs, helping communities thrive, and meeting demand for carbon-free energy that is affordable, reliable, and safe for all. They are committed to working towards an even better tomorrow. Learn more at southerncompany.com. Now, back to Stephen and Angela's conversation about how physical space affects personal success. I remember the first time I heard this phrase, it was about 15 years ago, the minute I heard it, I thought, oh, that's what I need to avoid whenever possible. And the phrase was cognitive drift. You're familiar with this phrase, I assume? Cognitive drift. I can figure it out from context clues, but what is it? Just that your mind wanders? Yeah, it just means what it says it means. But what fascinated me about it was the guy who was telling me about it was a medical doctor and a researcher who was trying to overhaul how his hospital processed, analyzed, stored, and then made available to the medical staff information from all different areas of the hospital. In other words, if you're working in the emergency department and someone comes in there with a head trauma, let's say, one of the things you want to know is, have we seen this patient before? If so, what did we see this patient for? If we saw that person before, was there imaging done? If there was, let me take a look at that imaging now. It's like basically so the left hand knows what the right is doing. Basically just having access to all the information you'd want. As he was describing it, cognitive drift is what happens when you don't get the information you want in a relatively short amount of time. And believe me, the amount of time is really short. And it doesn't take long for the average brain to get distracted, to start thinking about something else, to start wanting to try a different problem and so on. And so the big problem he was trying to solve was to make all information available anywhere instantly. But the thing that really captured me was this notion of cognitive drift. I began to realize that I'm encountering it all the time. And so for me to work well... I need to be in an environment where I minimize the possibility of cognitive drift. And when you think about that, it's not only the built environment, not only the physical space and the flow and the light, but some of these other things that we've been touching on, like noise pollution and light pollution, and even things like if you're working at a desk or a table. It's too cluttered or it's too small. I think for all the talk about how exciting it is for ideas to collide, this was the idea behind the open office that was thought to be a miracle. If we put all these people together, then just imagine how these amazing creative ideas. It'll be like a you know tsunami of creativity. We did a, an episode related to this as well. It was called, Yes, the Open Office is Terrible, but it doesn't have to be. And we looked at a paper which found that a few big companies, Fortune 500 companies, who'd switched from cubicles, meaning semi-closed, to an open office plan with the hopes of increasing employee collaboration, they found that the openness actually led to less collaboration. Why would that be? They basically found that when you put people in an open office, they're prone to Slack or email each other much more. Out of consideration, probably, right? Absolutely. Because you can't have one conversation in an open office without it being everybody's conversation. Also, think about it. If you and I were wanting to collaborate on some project and we were hashing it out, like it's not ready for prime time, do we want to do it right here and now in front of people who are listening? Or do we want to just shoot the crap on a phone call or in an email? Because, you know, the exchange of ideas, you don't necessarily want to put yourself up for criticism right away. But I will say we're seeing a very, very interesting moment now that there's a return to the office post-COVID. A lot of people don't want to go back. Those that do want to go back do not necessarily want to be in an open office anymore because having worked at home for a long time and had a little bit of privacy. Probably like foregrounds how awesome it is to actually have a room of your own. 
Speaking of which, a room of one's own, that was Virginia Woolf's way of saying how important it is if you're a writer, especially a female writer in early 20th century England. So I was assigned a room of one's own, and there is a passage. It's just this indelible image that when you're thinking of something, it's like a fish. You can see a flash of the fish under the water, and you're trying to catch it on your line. And maybe, maybe if you're lucky, the idea will catch on the line of your thought. You have to have patience and, you know, just like a good fisherman, try to reel it in, but not too fast. And then what Virginia Woolf goes on to say is that if somebody says like, hey, you— you by the pond, you need to move over here. Any kind of interruption, the fish will run and hide and it will basically escape you. There is absolutely a ton of research showing that when you're by yourself in a room, your ability to follow your own line of thought, to concentrate, it's just easier when you have a room of your own. And Virginia Woolf would add, as she does in this essay, ideally a room with a lock on the door. (laughs) So your message, if I'm hearing what you're saying properly, is that everyone who's listening to us should quit their jobs and become (laughs) writers and work on their own with a locked door, correct? Well, no, I don't want you to take that. And especially because this question started off with schools and classrooms. So wait, I misinterpreted. You're saying that all children... We should lock all children in their own room. (laughs) No, no, no. That would be cruel. I'm saying that all children should quit school and go home lock their door, and just do their thing, and everything will be better. That's what the pandemic was, Stephen, right? And it didn't work well, did it? Oh, my gosh. I have done research on this, and actually I have a paper that I haven't yet published. But unequivocally, when kids were completely in their bedrooms, in other words, they were not in any hybrid model, so wholly being schooled at home, their well-being dropped on literally every question I could ask. But the paper that I haven't yet published also shows that there was a cost to their academics. So if you look in a school district where they had fully remote kids and then fully in school, the kids who were at home in their bedrooms, you know, that's a room of your own. Yeah. But they suffered. So I think the moral of the story of the pandemic, and if you put it together with this new research on classroom design, is that there is a time and we need a place for solitude. And that is for concentration and like keeping the fish on the line of your thought. But I think there's also a time and we need a place for community and that the architecture also has to accommodate. And that, to be fair, is exactly what Yildiz is, is talking about in this note. She's saying that she wants to build not only a primary school, but She wants it to share its facilities with the community, offer adult education classes, and act as a neighborhood center. The NYU sociologist Eric Kleinenberg, he wrote a book called Palaces for the People. You think about old public libraries, YMCAs, things like that. So he discusses what he calls social infrastructure for public and accessible gathering places. And he's made the argument that as more and more of those kind of spaces disappear in favor of more private market solutions, that when the social infrastructure gets degraded, he writes, the consequences are unmistakable. People reduce the time they spend in public settings and hunker down in their safe houses. Social networks weaken, crime rises, older and sick people grow isolated, distrust rises, and civic participation wanes. Wait, Stephen, I need to ask you, was that written before or after the pandemic? Because I think... That was before. That is a strikingly accurate narrative of what happened in the pandemic. And it really goes to Yildiz's larger point, which is not just that architecture and design matter, and not just that they matter for a school, but it would probably behoove all of us to think a little bit more about how they matter for society and how we live. I mean, you've talked me out of the fact that most people should quit their jobs or quit school and go be alone all day like I do. So I accept that. Good. That's progress. But I will say this. I think when we send people back into the public workforce, or even when you're working remotely, it's worth considering how cognitive drift and other ailments like this continue to happen. I read something the other day. This is going to blow you away. Okay, shoot. This is a piece from Bloomberg News, which is reporting on a study put out by a cloud software company called Okta. And they measured how many different apps the average company deployed last year. 
and how many they deployed in 2015. What do you mean by deployed? Let's say I am a marketing executive or a finance executive or in accounting at some firm. How many different apps or programs are on my computer that I'm expected to at least occasionally engage with. Oh, you mean my company is actually asking me to have this app? Correct. You have a company, you have an overlord, the University of Pennsylvania. So you probably have different reporting software and communication software and so on. So as of 2015, how many apps or programs would you say the average company asked its employees to engage with at least sometimes? My gosh, I hope it's not a super high number. I was hoping it was like two or three. In 2015, the number was 58. Oh my gosh. And last year, it's 89. No, seriously? There's close to 100. At large employers, that figure is 187. Wait, how can that be? Because when you work for a big company and you're trying to solve a problem it's often a really appealing solution to find some software solution to your problem. Right. As opposed to sorting it out and figuring out how to actually address the root cause. So I'll read you a little bit here from this Bloomberg news piece. Of those apps, the 187 at large firms and the 89 at the smaller firms, close to 30% are duplicative or add no value, according to a survey of senior business leaders by WalkMe, an enterprise software provider. So let me point out the paradox here. This is a study done by one cloud software company, which includes (laughs) reporting by another enterprise software provider. I mean, you see that the incentives to do this are huge because it's a selling game. You need another app. Let me sell it to you. And just think about the cognitive drift or just the interruption of flow. Every time you're asked to go to a different environment or a different window to perform a different task, Your task at hand is getting interrupted. And I think that's a huge issue in how people work today because we're asking people to pay attention and then giving them noises and visual cues and notifications that almost prevent them from paying attention to a real task. So I have an example of what it should be because I think we have all had personal experience with what it shouldn't be. Too many interruptions, not enough daylight. The example that I want to give is this little town. It's called Seaside, and it's in Florida. Many people saw The Truman Show, the Jim Carrey movie about this kind of utopian, but it turns out to be like secretly dystopian town that's too perfect. Yeah. It's an actual town, and the town is Seaside, Florida. And when the movie directors were like, scouting out places, they looked for literally the most beautiful place in the world. Mm. And they found this little town that isn't even that old. And it was built by two people, Robert and Daryl Davis, who I actually used to tutor their son in math and then their family friends now. Anyway, it's this little gem because each of the buildings is actually built by an architect, very often a serious and famous architect. This place has a little school called the Seaside Neighborhood School. This school is almost exactly what Yilda is talking about. It's not only a school for the children, but it's also a community center. And it's actually built to mimic what Thomas Jefferson had created as the University of Virginia plan. It's actually got these little pavilions, I guess, that are all white wood. And then they are surrounding a central green, just like Thomas Jefferson thought was like the ideal plan for the commerce of ideas, etc. And anyway, it's just magical. And I have to say, there's something about being in that building and walking along the colonnade and it like connects all the classrooms outside because it's Florida, you have the sense that if you have the right people creating the built environment, that what they really are are psychologists. They figure out, oh, let's make a place for community, but let's also make rooms where, you know, people can be by themselves. Let's make it beautiful. They check all of the boxes of that study that say, like, is there natural light? Is there fresh air? Is there enough complexity, but not too much complexity? It's like the platonic ideal of the built environment. Hearing that, it makes me want the people who designed and continue to maintain that or someone young like Yield is to turn their attention to one particular type of institution whose built environment is, in my personal experience, 
almost always terrible. And it's a really important one. Can you guess what I'm thinking? I'm thinking hospitals. Hospitals. Because they're terrible. It's the worst. I think it's one of these... I don't know, some people would call it a coordination problem or a principal agent problem, which is the people who are involved in doing the work of a hospital are so devoted to doing important work that this seemingly less consequential component, which is how does it feel to be in there? What does it look like? And I know that there has been some work. There was a paper way back in the 1980s I once saw called View through a window may influence recovery from surgery. There were some environmental psychologists led by a guy named Robert Ulrich. I mean, it's a very small experiment. I wouldn't say it would stand up to a lot of scrutiny, but he compared the outcome of 23 patients in rooms with windows that looked out at nice trees and 23 that faced brick walls and found that they recovered faster when looking at nature. I know there's been more recent research related to COVID, not in hospitals. There's a paper I'm looking at here called The Importance for Well-Being on Having Views of Nature from and in the Home During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Mm. And all these studies find a similar effect, which is that, yeah, your environment affects how you feel. None of this should surprise us. In a hospital, I think the double whammy is that you're there because you're ill and hopefully recovering. One key component of recovering is sleeping well. And it's so hard to sleep in a hospital because of all the- Oh my gosh, it's ridiculous. The beeping. So maybe Yildiz and the next generation can really turn their attention to that. When Yildiz moves on from the master's thesis, which will be awesome, I'm sure, to hospitals, I think this (laughs) checklist that Professor Peter Barrett and his colleagues put together for the seven factors that really matter, it's just the right checklist for anything, I think. And here's what they say, not just categorically, but I think it's just very helpful in its specificity. Daylight, fresh air, low noise, personalization, flexible, movable furniture, functional colors, open layouts, lack of clutter. That's not what a hospital sounds like to me. But isn't that kind of what we all want for almost all of the things that we spend time doing? It is. And that's not even including the major components of what I think about when I think about architecture and design, things like flow and things like materials, all of which are important. And you know what else is important? What? What's something that most people do a few times a day, but often is a little bit inconvenient to get to? The bathroom? The bathroom. So check this out. There was a study from the Journal of Urology, which is one of my favorite journals. (laughs) I'm sure it's a page turner. Which found that 88% of elementary school teachers encourage their students to hold their pee. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm so not surprised. Didn't that happen to you all the time when you were in elementary school? And middle and high school, honestly. And you're made to feel like a failure for having to go to the bathroom. In what world does that make sense? So bathroom access is probably something. Bathroom design. Open doors. You don't have to open the filthy door with your clean hands. Wait, open doors? How, you, don't, you don't want to have doors on the stalls in bathrooms? Well, I was thinking about the actual front door. So you know, a lot of airports are getting this right now, but a lot of other places, including hospitals, are still not. So if you think about it, one thing you want to do in a bathroom is design it so that when you leave, you don't have to put your hand on a doorknob or a push plate oh. because you've just washed your hands. And then you undo all that good work that you just did. Right. Oh, so in bathrooms in the airport, it's just cleverly like you turn left and you turn right so you can't see anything, but there's no door. You got it. You know, it's this kind of creativity. Like, I cannot tell you how genius Robert and Daryl are. And we're kind of like close enough that I've been in their home for lunches, dinners. I slept over. Do they have doorless bathrooms there? You know what? They have everything that you want. And you might think like, well, you know, they have a lot of money, which is true because Seaside's a very successful development. But more than that, they have creativity. And this is the thing. Every single time I go back and visit them, something has changed or moved. Like, oh, what happened to that rack used to have? Oh, well, we decided that like it made even more sense to put things over here. And I think this idea that if you have not necessarily a lot of money, but if you just have this mindset that like, hey, the built environment works and I'm constantly going to just experiment to see, we should be able to do things like doorless bathrooms. We should be able to do things like making sure that kids have enough daylight. I mean, it doesn't necessarily take a high tech or even high dollar sign solution to these things. If you just start with the question, which is how can we make the built environment work. I think that is such a great point because, you know, mindset matters so much. I would also say 
there's a behavioral component here, which is not so much about how am I going to fit into this space and benefit from it, but how am I going to help other people enjoy the space? In other words, how am I going to respect really the other people in this space and be aware of the noise that I'm making or be aware of how I may be impeding the flow of other people. Arlene Bronzaft, the environmental noise consultant in New York City, she's lovely and a real New Yorker who speaks very directly and has a lot of roses and a lot of thorns. In terms of the big thorn, what she'll say has really contributed to our environments getting noisier and noisier. She says it comes down to one word. It's respect. People have (laughs) lost respect for other people. And, you know, I think we're living in a funny time right now, especially reemerging from this frozen, weird womb state of COVID, where a lot of people are now coming back out into public and sort of forgetting how to behave in public. So maybe it's a good fresh start opportunity. We can be aware of how our environments affect us and be aware of how we affect other people in that built environment. Yeah, I like that. And can we build an environment that can do a little bit of the work of reminding us? Like, is it possible that somehow we can do what Churchill said, which is shape the buildings intentionally so that they can shape us in the way that we want. I love it. So solution-wise, we probably need more people like Yildiz who are actually thinking about the benefits of good design that go beyond the individual people who are meant to benefit from that particular building. And I also think it's really important to just acknowledge that we need more researchers to measure the gains and losses from good and bad built environments. That's the way I would sum it up. Amazing. Yes. Coming up after the break, a fact check of today's conversation. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and over 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That hurtful comment your friend made, that frustrating thing your mom does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Therapy is a safe space to share whatever is weighing you down so you can get some relief and find a solution. BetterHelp offers professional, affordable online therapy on a flexible schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Freakonomics today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Freakonomics. No Stupid Questions is produced by me, Rebecca Lee Douglas, and now here's a fact check of today's conversation. In the first half of the show, Angela struggles to remember the context of Winston Churchill's famous quote, First we shape our buildings, and afterwards our buildings shape us. 
and she guesses that it was after Parliament had been bombed during World War II. This is correct. In May of 1941, the Commons Chamber was struck by German Air Force bombs and entirely destroyed. The Commons debated how to rebuild and decided to retain its, quote, adversarial rectangle pattern, which Churchill insisted was responsible for the essence of British democracy. Parties are separated by what the House has referred to as two swords lengths apart, although it's been over 700 years since weapons were allowed in the chamber. Also, Angela notes that this design reflects the United Kingdom's two-party system. Since World War II, all governments in the UK have been formed by either the Conservative or the Labour Party, occasionally in coalition with smaller parties. But there are other parties that hold seats in Parliament. Currently, the Scottish National Party, the Independents, the Liberal Democrats, the Democratic Unionists, and six additional parties are all represented in the chamber. The party in power sits on one side of Parliament, and all other parties sit in opposition. Next, Stephen describes a 1975 study led by environmental psychologist and noise expert Arlene Bronzaft. He says she found something like a full grade level of math achievement different in the noisy rooms versus the quiet rooms. However, the study did not address students' math abilities. Instead, Bronzaft and her colleagues found that the students on the noisier east side of the building consistently demonstrated lower levels of achievement on standardized reading tests. After the transit authority cushioned the nearby subway rails with rubber pads and the classrooms were set up with sound-absorbing materials, students' reading levels improved as much as a grade level. Also, Stephen mispronounces the name of the IT service management company featured in the Bloomberg article that he referenced. He calls the company Okta, but it's actually pronounced Okta. Then, Stephen references the 1984 article, View Through a Window May Influence Recovery from Surgery, and says that the author's name is Robert Ulrich. The environmental psychologist who led the study is actually Roger Ulrich. Ulrich is a professor of architecture at the Center for Healthcare Building Research at Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden. He is credited with popularizing the idea of evidence-based design in healthcare. That's it for the fact check. Before we wrap today's show, let's hear listener thoughts on some of our recent episodes of No Stupid Questions. Here's what listener John Cosgrove had to say after hearing episode number 119. Jesus. Angela, why are you such a f***ing potty mouth? Hello, no stupid questions. My name is John Cosgrove. I'm from County Fermanagh in the north of Ireland, but I've lived in Minneapolis, Minnesota for the past 23 years. There aren't a lot of Irish natives here in the Twin Cities, so we get to swear because people generally think it's cute and they think it's funny. I've been on local radio and I've hosted corporate events where I've introduced Irish swear words such as and those words are offensive in my country, but they're not offensive over here because people are not quite sure about it. Here's what listener Lin Chen had to say in response to episode number 124. How do you stop grinding your teeth? Hello, my name is Lin Chen. I live in Los Angeles, California, and I just had to send a voice memo because I recently cracked two dental guards in my sleep because I grind my teeth. And I finally went to go get Botox in my masseter muscles a few weeks ago, and I'm still waiting to see if this actually helps. But in the meantime, I was just so excited to find out that there are two more things that I have in common with Angela Duckworth. We're both Asian Americans who have mothers named Teresa. We both love Diet Coke. And now we both grind our teeth and have Botox in our jaws. Very exciting for me. And here's what listener Justine Benjamin said after listening to episode number 121. How good are your snap judgments? Hi, I'm Justine from San Jose, California. And a first impression that I had was about a person, a man, that I met when I started entering the dating field. This gentleman was living at home, was working at his parents' business because he was in between jobs, and drove a 1994 Mustang. All red flags for me, but I proceeded to date him, just thinking it would be fun. Turns out the reason why he was living at home was cultural. You don't leave until you're married, and even when you get married, you might just stay with the family still. Turns out the reason why he was working at his parents' business was because he quit his job when his father had a stroke to take care of the business so it wouldn't fold. 
I can't give any reasons or excuses for the 1994 Mustang. But nonetheless, we've been together for 14 years, married for nine of those, have two amazing children. So sorry, first impressions, you were wrong. Thanks so much to those listeners and to everyone who sent us their stories. And remember, we'd still love to hear whether you're Team Dubner or Team Levitt. Are you highly sensitive when it comes to your surroundings, or can you pretty much work anywhere? Send a voice memo to nsq at Freakonomics.com. Let us know your name, and if you'd like to remain anonymous, you might hear your voice on the show. Hey there, it's Stephen Dubner again, and that was a special episode of No Stupid Questions. If you enjoyed listening to me chat with Angela Duckworth about psychology, architecture, quitting your job, or if you'd like to hear us talk about swearing, teeth grinding, and first impressions, you should go right now to your podcast app and follow or subscribe to No Stupid Questions. There are more than 100 episodes waiting for you there. Meanwhile, coming up next time here on Freakonomics Radio... Creativity is extremely difficult to predict. We all know about the one-hit wonder phenomenon. It's kind of got stigma associated with it, but I actually think it should be seen as a positive thing. We talk to some creativity scholars about their research, and we find out what it feels like from the creator side. I hated that paper. <laughs> I found it really insulting. <laughs> the day before you have a hit, it doesn't sound so bad. And the day after you have a hit, you're like, God, I don't want this to be my whole life. The Science of the One-Hit Wonder. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Until then, take care of yourself. And if you can, someone else too. Freakonomics Radio and No Stupid Questions are both part of the Freakonomics Radio Network, which also includes people I mostly admire and Freakonomics MD. Our shows are produced by Stitcher and Renbud Radio. This episode was produced by Rebecca Lee Douglas and mixed by Greg Rippin and Eleanor Osborne. Our staff also includes Zach Lipinski, Morgan Levy, Ryan Kelly, Catherine Moncure, Alina Coleman, Julie Canfer, Jeremy Johnston, Jasmine Klinger, Daria Klenert, Emma Terrell, Lyric Bowditch, and Elsa Hernandez. Our executive team is Neil Carruth, Gabriel Roth, and me, Stephen Dubner. Our original music is composed by Luis Guerra. The theme song for No Stupid Questions is And She Was by Talking Heads. Special thanks to David Byrne and Warner Chapel Music. If you'd like to read a transcript or check out the underlying research of any of our shows, that is all at freakonomics.com. As always, thanks for listening. The conservatives on one side, the Tories on the other. No, no, no. Conservative and Tory are the same. Okay, so the liberals on one side and the... They don't call themselves liberals. They call themselves labor. Then there's the liberal Democrats, which are a different party. It gets confusing. So confuzzling. The Freakonomics Radio Network. The hidden side of everything. Stitcher. At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.